Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In this episode, you'll hear from Lauren Bravo, writer, journalist and expert on the true social, economic and environmental cost of fast fashion. Let's start with the environmental stuff. So fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. It has a carbon footprint that is bigger than aviation and shipping combined. If we fix fashion, it would make an enormous difference. At the start of 2019, Lauren challenged herself not to buy any new clothes that year. This experience led to her book, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion, out now, in which she covers, amongst other things, the psychology of becoming habituated to our clothes, the desire to stay on trend at all costs, and the consumerist messaging we get from our social media. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Lauren Bravo. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Lauren, tell me, how did you get involved in this form of activism and why this form of activism? Do you know, it's funny that you use that word because I still don't think I feel like a proper activist. Um, I don't feel like I have have a claim on that term. But I've had quite an interesting journey with fashion and clothes. So that's, you know, I'm very much coming from that perspective as opposed to, you know, environmental perspective. I started off when I was a kid, buying a lot of clothes from charity shops. My parents always bought a lot of things secondhand, um, you know, partly because we didn't have heaps of money, but also because they just enjoyed the sort of process of the treasure hunt. And in my teenage years, I wore a lot of vintage clothes because I thought that made me cool. Um, and then it was really over the course of my 20s that I found myself sort of seduced by the lure and the convenience of fashion. I found that I was shopping more and more and more in an effort to keep up, I suppose. You know, I think working in women's media and marketing, spending a lot of my time in central London, and I just felt like I was constantly kind of failing to wear the right, you know, in inverted commas, the right outfit. And eventually I realised enough was enough. And at the same time as a fashion journalist, I was starting to wise up to the truth of the industry. You know, I was reading more about the exploitation of garment workers. I was reading more about the huge environmental impact. And, you know, there are certain stats that you can't unlearn (laughs) once you know them. And um, it all sort of came to a head when I was moving house, actually. It was around the time I turned 30, which I think is a turning point for a lot of people. And I was moving house and I was sifting through almost a decade's worth of kind of shopping mistakes and so many things that I'd forgotten I even owned, Uh, you know, things that were still perfectly nice, but I just kind of got bored of them and moved on. And so that was when I decided to challenge myself to go for a whole year um, without buying anything brand new. And at the same time, I started writing more about sustainable fashion as well. I started pitching to my usual editors and seeing if they were interested. And some of them were, some of them weren't, but some of them were. Um, and then a few months into that challenge, I actually got approached to write the book. So it's been a weird kind of journey into activism, I suppose, in that, yeah, I've always felt like a bit of an imposter and I'm still very much learning on the job. But I hope that means that what I write is 
perhaps a little bit more relatable for it. Well, what you write obviously is informed by your career as a fashion journalist and you've written for, amongst others, Vogue, Grazia, Cosmo, Stylist. Do you ever feel conflicted about this because you are writing about fashion? Do you feel like you are kind of telling tales? Oh, all the time. Yeah, massively so. (laughs) It's really hard because, you know, writing about fashion was always my dream. I was a kid who was always sketching out little dress designs on scrap paper and dressing up my Barbies and tinfoil and things. So fashion has always been a, a great love of mine. And I think that when I first started writing about sustainability, there was still this idea that sustainable fashion meant sacrificing style you know it meant sort of resigning yourself to life in a shapeless beige hemp sack dress and that was it (laughs) I'm not that kind of dresser you know that's not me I'm not a minimalist Uh, I love print and things and color and flamboyant stuff so yeah there's definitely a part of me that did at first feel like I was almost betraying the industry that I had clawed my way into And of course, now, any time I write a fashion feature that isn't specifically about carbon emissions or workers' rights, I feel a bit guilty that I am betraying my sort of sustainable principles. I worry that I'm still part of the problem, I suppose. But, you know, I think I've reached a compromise and decided that actually it's important for people to read the hard-hitting stuff, the cold, hard facts. But I think it's also important I write about trends still sometimes, but I will link to secondhand examples, for example, or what is the new Laura Ashley in terms of buying vintage? What are some other uh, designers from the 70s that are really popular and things like that? So I think there's always a way of writing about fashion that's celebratory and joyful and fun and creative, but takes the emphasis off buying new things. That's what I try to do. Lauren, you talked about the cold, hard facts of fast fashion there. Can you give us an overview of the reality of fast fashion? I can, yes. I sometimes suggest people should have a drink in hand when I do this. (laughs) Let's start with the environmental stuff. So fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. Um, Some people will say it's the second most polluting, That, that is disputed, but it's definitely up there. It has a carbon footprint that is bigger than aviation and shipping combined. And obviously, you know, a lot of that comes from garment production, but there's also really intensive farming that happens um, to grow all the fabric that we need for all those clothes. At this rate, the fashion industry is projected to use 35% more land to grow fibres by 2030. And there's a really terrifying statistic which says that by 2050, we actually need three planet Earths in order to sustain our current behaviours, which is mind boggling. So part of the problem is the way that we make our clothes. Um, We know we use synthetics, which can take hundreds of years to biodegrade. They're made of crude oil and there's a lot of chemicals involved. But also it's the sheer volume, really, of clothes. So at the moment, about 100 billion new garments are produced every single year, um, which is nearly 14 new items of clothing for every single person on the planet every single year, which is far more than we need. So if you go back only a couple of decades, clothes were not being made or bought at that pace. So we know that the average person these days buys 60% more clothes than they did 15 years ago and keeps them for only half as long. In the UK alone, we have 350,000 tonnes of clothes ending up in landfill every year. We have a lot of clothing as well that is donated to charity shops and recycling bins. But we know that huge amounts of that clothing, unfortunately, can't be sold over here. It can't be recycled either. And it ends up being shipped over to countries like Ghana, where it is stifling local textile economies and becoming a huge waste issue over there instead. 
Then you kind of get to the humanitarian side of things. So fashion is huge. You know, it's estimated that one in six people on the planet works in the garment industry in some capacity. And we know that less than 2% of garment workers are paid a living wage. So, you know, the vast majority of those workers are young women. Um, I'm sure this is something we can chat more about as well. They are frequently separated from their children. They're subject to very unhealthy and unsafe working conditions. They're often sexually harassed or sexually abused at work. And they have, crucially, the majority of them have no ability to negotiate their pay or their conditions. But it wouldn't take that much to change all of that. So increasing the price of a garment by only about 1% could actually be enough to pay the person who made it a living wage. Often as women, we feel we feel got at and we feel made to feel guilty because, you know, overwhelmingly, we are more often the ones who are consuming more fashion. But I like to reframe it and make sort of make that point that it is a feminist issue because it's women who are suffering to make us these clothes. And then at the other end of the ladder, only 12.5% of fashion companies have a female CEO. You know, women still buy clothes. We're kind of marketed to more aggressively and we're lining male pockets at the end of the day. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on about the fact that synthetic fibres take ages to biodegrade um, and that fashion is one of the top polluting industries. And I just want to tell you about something that happened recently uh, that made me wonder if people do actually understand how important fashion is in the debate around sustainability. I have a friend who works in the fashion industry um, and she pitched an idea to a colleague about biodegradable clothes. And the response was, he said, I'm sorry, it's COP26. I only have time for strong stories. I mean, is that a case of not seeing the wood for the trees? Absolutely. I mean, this is the, this is the trouble when you have people who work in environmentalism, people who are experts in their field, still not recognising the scale of the problem that fashion presents. I think that's a whole other kind of misogyny, isn't it? Ultimately, it's sort of saying, well, let's deal with the important things like flying and petrol and oil and things like that. But clothing, fashion, frivolous, silly things for women, they can't really be that much of a problem, can they? (laughs) But those stats that I just reeled off, I think, sort of show that the scale of this, it is huge. If we fix fashion, it would make an enormous difference. Mm. And that does start with engaging people on matters like making our clothes biodegradable, making sure that, you know, if we do need to put them in the ground, they're not going to be wreaking havoc with our land. (laughs) Right, Lauren, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you name and shame? Can you tell us which shops are the worst offenders? Or or can you talk a bit about greenwashing as you do in your book? Are we just kind of making ourselves feel better by buying stuff that we think is green when it isn't really? The worst offenders, I would say, who sort of score badly across all categories would be Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, Misguided, Shein, those... <gasps> oh, a little intake of breath at Shein there. Well, no, I just have to say, you know, our, you know, my daughter is... Uh, both my daughters, they, you know, they are the first full cohort of full digital natives. They are relentlessly targeted by online brands like the ones you've just mentioned and influencers. Understandably, they want to have the latest trends. I do not know what else I can say to convey these important messages. Your kids of a certain age, it's it's less important to them to think about sustainability than it is to look a certain way. I completely understand. You know, you want to look like your pals when you're that age. So how do we get them on board? Anyway, I'm so sorry I interrupted you. I'd still love to hear you name and shame, but I would love to hear your tips about how to engage and convince young people of the importance of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I would say is I completely sympathize because also when I was a teenager, 
you know, I don't think I would have cared as much either because the most important thing in the world at that age is doing what your friends are doing. It's feeling accepted. It's feeling, you know, part of the group. It's so much change as well, isn't it? You know, I was incredibly fickle. I changed my personal style about once every three months at that age. You know, you're constantly redefining who you are. And so I certainly wouldn't suggest that anybody kind of sits down a teenager and tries to convince them that they need to have a wardrobe that is just grey cashmere jumpers. And I think we have to accept that at that age, when you're sort of defining yourself, of course, you're going to want to experiment with clothes. Of course, you're going to have that appetite for new things and you're going to be quite fickle. So, you know, I think that's understandable and we have to kind of work within that. But I do think there are ways of doing that in a way that is more sustainable. And I will get onto that as well. The thing with Shein um, that a friend said to me the other day, which is quite often with these ultra fast fashion brands, if it's not necessarily just on the basis of the environment or you know the humanitarian problems, it might be by pointing out that a lot of those clothes look terrible <laughs> and they're falling apart. You know, the hems are, are not sewn well. They're trailing threads. You put them in the wash once and then they lose their shape. They go baggy. They look terrible. And then, of course, you end up feeling you need another outfit and I do think that there's a lot to be said for getting teenagers to sort of define their own sort of image and actually getting into sewing or hooking them up with a local tailor there are some brilliant innovations now so there's a great app I love called Sojo and they're like Deliveroo for clothing alterations so they'll come to your door they'll take away your garment and they'll transform it for you, whether that is, you know, taking up the hem, fixing a button or completely overhauling it so that it's a whole new look. And I think that's maybe one way we could get through to teenagers is actually saying, look, that dress you've got that you don't feel brilliant in because it doesn't quite fit you perfectly. And, you know, maybe looks a bit ropey and maybe your friend has got exactly the same one. Why not actually invest a bit of time and energy in you know, transforming it and making it something that feels really unique to you that other people are going to say, oh, I love that. Where's mm. that from? I mean, there is a trend. It's not really a trend. It's, it was it was ever thus for vintage. What freaks me out about vintage these days is that the 90s counts as vintage. And I still think of that as being about five years ago. Anything pre-millennium is vintage, which is terrifying. I love seeing all the, all the young people as well wearing exactly what I was wearing in 2002. In each episode of Racer Up, we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. Today, we hear from Alex Rigglesworth, consultant teacher for sustainability at South Hampstead High School. Hi, I'm Alex Rigglesworth, and I teach product design and fashion and textiles, and also an Educate Global UN accredited climate change teacher. There's definitely a reciprocal relationship between my love for design and how passionately I feel about sustainability. Before becoming a teacher, I worked as a textile designer for the fashion industry and I've seen firsthand how damaging the processes used can be. The more I learnt about the issues we face surrounding climate change and the impact of fast fashion, the more I realised that good design must be part of the solution. However, there are indisputable links between design thinking and sustainability. Looking to the future, I think it's essential that we design with sustainability in mind and the world needs conscientious designers to help us face the challenges that lie ahead. At South Hampstead, we advocate an approach to design that considers the circular economy and really values the provenance of the material being used. As a whole school, we're trying to embed education for sustainability across our curriculum. We're carrying out a subject audit and highlighting connections so that students see the bigger picture and understand systemic issues. Our sustainability projects and initiatives are always student-led 
but teacher supported. And with this approach, we've eliminated all plastic water bottles and cups from the site, mapped our food supply chain and reduced our meat consumption. Next on the list is mapping the uniform supply chain, which isn't going to be an easy task, reducing our paper usage across all school activities and greening our indoor and outdoor spaces. Our headmistress, Vicky Bingham, and the GDST are really supportive of our sustainability drive, which means that we have the right support to make positive changes. There's also a growing number of sustainability coordinators across the 25 schools in the GDST, which is really exciting. And it's proof that as an individual, you might only have a small impact, but the ripple effect means that many people working together will leverage a more sustainable value system for the future. So Lauren, we've talked about how important it is for not just teenagers, but for all of us to want to feel good in our skin and to feel like we are following fashion to a certain extent. I have two questions around that. How can we follow fashion if we are not allowed to buy new trends? And second of all, when we talk about kind of going to charity shops, etc., you know, what if you have a particular body shape? I am very tall and I quite often just can't find stuff in charity shops that will fit me. I think it's kind of human nature, isn't it? to to follow fashion in a certain way to follow culture i think it's normal for culture to change it's normal for us to get a little bit bored of things um i spoke to a brilliant psychologist in my book called dr dion terrelong who is a stylist and a psychologist and she taught me about habituation which is essentially the process by which human brains become accustomed to something to a stimulus and then we get bored of it And that's quite normal. And so, you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up when we feel like we want a bit of a wardrobe refresh or we want to feel kind of current because, yeah, to an extent, that's kind of human nature. But I do think there are ways of doing it without running out to the high street every time we get that sort of itch. Fashion Revolution have a great saying, which is the most sustainable garment is the one already in your wardrobe. And it is amazing how often you can find things that you bought a few years ago that actually fit the bill for a trend that feels brand new. So, you know, fashion is not that original. A lot of the time, things are coming back around at such a pace that there might be something in the back of your wardrobe from five years ago that is good enough, you know, and actually getting it out and going, oh, I've forgotten I have this. It's actually quite nice. And if I put it with this pair of trousers that I bought a few months ago, actually, it feels like a brand new outfit. And suddenly it feels fresh and exciting again. I'm a real like champion of the good old fashioned dressing up session. It can be really fun to get all of your old clothes out, you know, have a glass of wine, put some music on, make it a makeover montage if you want to. Um, and actually have a go at styling things differently because that is the skill that fast fashion has robbed us of. It's funny you should say that. Last weekend I did do a wardrobe clear out at my mum's and found a cook eye jacket from 1997, I think, or 1998. I've come full circle with it because, you know, 10 years ago I thought it was hideous and I couldn't believe that my mum still had it. And I tried it on and thought, oh, I quite like this actually. So, okay. I'm not big into Marie Kondo. I think that it can work for some people, but actually I believe in really hanging on to stuff because a lot of the time, like you say, something that you don't think you like at the moment, give it another couple of years, you probably will like it again. So I think secondhand obviously is a brilliant way to get that trend fixed. I mean, the, the scary thing is that a lot of fast fashion ends up on eBay, on sites like Depop and Vinted, quite often with the tags still attached. So, you know, if there is something you're considering buying brand new, I would always advise go to eBay, go to Depop, go to Vinted, go to Vestiaire Collective if it's something a bit more premium and just check because a lot of the time you will find that item secondhand. And also rental. I think rental is a really great way 
of again scratching that that trend itch without having to buy anything that's interesting yeah so the rental market is absolutely booming you know it's grown hugely in the last couple of years and it's a brilliant way particularly for events things you know where you know that you're maybe only going to wear that dress once or twice um you can rent it you can borrow it from somebody else's wardrobe even um and i think the more grassroots version of that of course is swapping with your friends something that again we don't do as much as adults but perhaps we should be put the call out on the whatsapp groups and just say look has anybody got a pastel blazer or whatever it is i need next week funnily enough the cook eye jacket was a pastel blazer thank you you've made me feel about 20 years younger (laughs) amazing um and then your second question so buying second hand if you have a particular body shape I mean, that's a really valid question. And, you know, it's something I always am quite careful to say when I'm talking about this stuff is that shopping sustainably is not as easy for everybody. Um, Everyone's working with different levels of privilege, whether it's income, your time or, you know, yeah, your, your size or your body shape. So we know it is much harder sadly, to buy secondhand clothes that are plus size. I volunteer in a charity shop and, you know, I see firsthand that we we get overwhelmingly so many more clothes in a size 8 and a size 10 than we do in a size 16 and up. Um, and I think that's really frustrating for a lot of people. You know, a lot of plus size people would love to to buy more secondhand, but the options just aren't there for them. And I'm sure, yeah, you know, as you say, if you're very tall, that's that's going to be a problem as well. So the main thing is I would say, don't beat yourself up if you can't. Um, but also, hopefully, the internet is making that easier. So whereas once upon a time, it was just a case of trawling through vintage shops or jumble sales or charity shops or whatever. These days, we are lucky in that, you know, we can trawl the whole of the internet to find that perfect item. Um, there's a really great app that I like called Gem, G-E-M, which um, filters all of the vintage on the internet, essentially. So you can actually filter things by by size and um, that makes it easier to find things as well that will fit. Again, in terms of height, annoyingly, I suppose that is a case of making friends with a good tailor if there's any seam allowance, which a lot of the time there isn't. Um, or hoping hoping for a new trend in really short trousers, maybe. Oh, I mean, that is quite hip at the moment. <laughs> the old ankle swingers are quite yes. easy. But I mean, it also leads me on, I suppose, to saying that, you know, this shouldn't be our problem. Um Ultimately, brands should be catering for everybody and doing it in a way that is ethical and is sustainable. So also, I would say that, you know, if there's a company that you love that does make trousers the right length for you or does make clothes in your size, but they are not, as far as you can see, doing much in the way of sustainability or ethics, then that's your invitation to to ask them why, you know, to lobby them and make sure that they know that, you know, this is something that you're concerned about as a customer. That's a really interesting message that you can be empowered to do something yourself, that you don't have to just sit back and kind of accept that this is the way of the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think um, people ask me a lot about boycotting shops and I'm a fan of boycotts if you can, you know, I do think they, they can make a difference. But I also think that it's important to hold brands accountable, let them know, you know, either why you're boycotting them, or if you are kind of still shopping with them, let them know that you're a kind of a valued customer and that you're not necessarily happy with the way that they're doing business. If enough of us were sending these brands messages um, saying, how much are you paying your garment workers? And why why aren't you using organic cotton? And asking those questions, you know, eventually they would have to make a change. Lauren, you are clearly evangelical about this and it's incredibly, it's brilliant to hear. You're so enthusiastic about it and it's really infectious. 
Is it something that has rubbed off on your family and friends? You know, you having that impact on people around you? I'd like to think a bit, yeah. Um, I mean, what I have noticed now is that if I meet up with a friend and I say, oh, you look lovely, I like that dress, they immediately yell, don't ask me where it's from. Um, I, I, I certainly don't think that I've kind of got everybody off the fast fashion bandwagon yet. But no, it has been really heartening actually seeing friends engage with with secondhand, with rental. I mean, I'm um, I'm getting married next weekend and a lot of guests have said to me, without me kind of laying down the law at all, but a lot of people have said like, oh, well, because it's your wedding, I'm not buying a new outfit. I'm wearing something that I've had in the wardrobe for a long time or I'm borrowing something or I'm renting something or I've bought something secondhand. And that was really lovely. Um, yeah, a lot of friends who've read the book and actually it has changed their mindset. And I think also hopefully has brought them kind of a bit more contentment and happiness when it comes to their own shopping habits because that's the other thing we're not just you know doing this to be martyrs and to sort of feel smug and we're not just doing it because morally we should be but also I genuinely find that I am happier and more content since I stopped buying fast fashion you know I have more spare time I have more energy I feel happier with the clothes that I do own I spend a lot less time kind of standing in my pants having a meltdown there's a lot of personal gain to be had as well I think from changing our shopping habits so it's really nice to see people engaging with that and actually feeling great about their clothes yeah (laughs) you are so enthusiastic it is fantastic to hear I'm not full of hope about how to stop my daughter shopping at Shein. And, and I can, uh, I can now tell her it's called Shein. The thing is as well, I think you just, it's got to become cool for them, hasn't it? It's got to be like, maybe when fast fashion is something they see as the older generation doing and it's not hip anymore. Cause that's, you know, I used to buy vintage because I thought that made me cool. And I think ultimately we've got to find a way, we've got to find a way of making fast fashion really lame. Yeah. (laughs) Lauren, thank you so much for this fantastic chat. It's been absolutely ace to speak to you today. Thanks so much. And How to Break Up with Fast Fashion is available now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, If you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST when I'll be with author, filmmaker and campaigner Kate Muir. I would tell women my own story and then they would tell me their story back and then their story would get bigger and my story would get bigger. And I realised that this time I was both a journalist and a patient and a human being. You know, everything went wrong. (laughs) You know, I got divorced. You know, I was living on my own in a flat and seeing my children part of the week. It all rose out of kind of menopause symptoms. I'll see you then.